Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. Schadenfreude, you know, plays a really big role in the workplace um, in both positive and negative ways. Um, one of the positive things I think that it does is that it allows people um, to um, just sort of cope a little bit better with the hierarchies, um, so with, essentially with having a boss. Um, so, you know, uh, employees often use Schadenfreude as, as a way of bonding, enjoying the boss's, you know, humiliating or embarrassing gaffes or whatever it is that they've done. Uh, you know, I think this is quite this is quite normal, uh, but also it allows us to to sort of balance the books a little bit. I, actually, one of the people I interviewed was a very prominent American academic, and he um, recalls this uh, this new head of department coming into his department, and he um, really didn't like this person, and they didn't like him, and there was a lot of animosity between them. And then he saw this, you know, this new head of department giving a lecture. You know, who's also a very prominent academic giving a lecture and his flies were undone and it was such a stupid thing but this academic still you know five six years later was still laughing about this moment because it it sort of it was so silly but it just allowed him to to cope a bit better with the you know with this very difficult relationship with his boss it's a bit like when you're you know you've got a job interview and you're encouraged to imagine the um, interview panel you know without their clothes on or something it just it just it was a moment that things could be sort of made a bit more equal to see others suffer does one good. The curious words of German philosopher and writer Friedrich Nietzsche. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. What is schadenfreude and what does it tell us about how we're all evolving? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with British historian of emotions and writer Tiffany Watt-Smith, whose latest book, Schadenfreude, The Joy of Another's Misfortune, has just been published by Profile Books, where Tiffany argues, over time and in many different places, when it comes to making ourselves happy, we humans have long relied on the humiliations and failures of other people. Tiffany goes on to state, we are immensely conflicted about schadenfreude, unsure what pains we are allowed to enjoy and when our scoffing will cause too much hurt. So do we all get a little bit of pleasure from someone else's pain? And is schadenfreude a malicious pleasure or harmless fun? Hi, I'm Dr Tiffany Watt-Smith. I'm a writer and I'm an academic and I'm a specialist in the history of emotions. I've just published a new book called Schadenfreude, the joy of other people's misfortunes. Um, I've written a few books about emotions. This one's probably been the most fun to do. It's about the glee we feel at other people's misfortunes. Well, an interesting read, Tiffany, I have to say. It was um, so funny to read some of the chapters and then very uncomfortable in other parts. You've such a range <laughs> of questions you, know, you bring up and I think every reader will have um, a certain awkwardness with the book and it will ring through in other ways. So it's it's such an interesting space from a reader's perspective because you learn a lot <laughs> about yourself and uh, some of the moral dilemmas that you face in your daily <laughs> lives as you're reading. Tell me, I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and sure we can take it from there. Do you I think it's fair to say that we all measure our sense of worth, our self-worth, by comparing ourselves to other people and whether that goes up or down or not. Gosh, that's a, that is a wide open question. I, th- I mean, we're obviously all told that we shouldn't. You know, we're told to not compare yourself and to just, you know, be on your own track and plough your own furrow and so on. But I actually think that it's very human to, because we live in societies, you know, we don't live alone. And because we live in societies, it seems very obvious to me that we we are kind of looking and checking to see you know how far does our behavior match up with those around us you know and obviously sometimes it's horrible when you think well actually you know I'm really falling behind here and we've all had that experience I know I certainly have and you think you know I'm just not managing to be as whatever clever fast rich whatever it is uh, as as the next person you know but then there are other times when we you know when we feel that we're not doing very well and then we sort of measure ourselves against someone else who's doing worse and we feel a little bit better. I mean, maybe it's not the best part of human nature, but I think it's inevitable and it is normal. And uh, in a way, that's why I found writing about Schadenfreude so interesting because it, it was a window into all these kind of hidden aspects of our, you know, of human life that are there, but that we just really don't like talking about. 
When you say there that schadenfreude is normal, I thought that was very interesting, but something can be normal, but not necessarily great. So, um, <laughs> so I'm just wondering, how would you define uh, schadenfreude? Because you could look at it in a lot of different ways. It could be kind of playful to a degree, but then it could be quite spiteful and nasty in another way. I think I think it's true that there's a huge range to schadenfreude. And, um, and sometimes it's just a bit of fun, like, you know, your boss gives a presentation and their flies are undone or something. You're just enjoying something silly. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, a lot more serious, you know, people laughing at, you know, someone really getting injured, uh, you know, for example, you know, jumping off their trampoline into a hedge and it seems quite funny and then actually you realise that they've actually been quite hurt. Um, but uh, I think Schadenfreude does get this rap as being an unpleasant or malicious emotion. And... Um, I think actually that's a kind of not necessarily terribly helpful way of thinking about it because, you know, even though it seems kind of malicious, it also is um, sort of taps into some of the things that make us most human. One of the things I found most interesting in looking at Schadenfreude is its links with justice. You know, we do enjoy seeing someone who's done something bad get some kind of comeuppance, you know, even if it's the universe appearing to intervene. So, you know, the person who shoves past you on the station steps still manages to miss the train. Um, uh, but but also, you know, even in the case of, you know, formal justice. So um, I was thinking about when the swindler, Bernie Madoff, uh, was sentenced to, I think, 100 years in prison. And, I mean, it was people in the courthouse, but people in their cars, people doing their ironing, people reading their newspapers. You know, people were really pleased at this news. Um, And I think there is a pleasure that we get in seeing people suffer when we think that they've deserved it in some way. And whilst there has got a tint of malice to that, I think it's also a really important part of being human and being in a just and reliable and fair society. So essentially then, like, payback is normal. It may be, you know, um, uncomfortable at times to admit it, but we all feel that sense of, you know, somebody deserved it, well, then they get their uh, rightful um, punishment, so to speak. Well, psychologists have studied this pleasure, you know, uh, for, for, for many years, actually. And, um, and, and yes, it does seem to be a very strong... Um, you know, strong activation um, of, of the areas of the brain which are associated with rewards. And, and this is suggesting that the pleasure that we see in wrongdoers get their comeuppance you know, is a very old pleasure, you know, and something which has evolved essentially to make sure that our society, that we do have just societies and that we are able to cooperate and, and live together in groups. Um, you know, it might not be very nice and sometimes I think um, it can get out of hand, but but it is important to recognise that there is this emotional component to our justice system because we usually think of justice as being something which is dispassionate and and objective, and yet it does have this emotional component too. So what does that actually tell us about our own human psychology then, in terms of our relationship with ourselves? Because I would imagine, depending on the type of situation, uh, schadenfreude would intensify. Like you see very um, complex and nasty play um, when uh, business, uh, some like very successful business people um, have financial collapse of some sort, or certainly politicians, whether you may be slightly um, more kind of, I suppose, compassionate to a celebrity who's going through a rough time that you feel you particularly relate to. Well, you've, you've sort of picked up several different kind of categories of schadenfreude there, which I think is really interesting. Um, but what I think what they bring together is is a sense of um, of hierarchies almost. You know, the, the politician or the really successful business person or the celebrity, they all seem to be in positions of, of influence and power and definitely of wealth that most of us just aren't going to enjoy and uh, or ever enjoy. And for the most part, I think we can kind of be settled with ourselves on that because, um, you know, certainly, you know, with celebrities, we know we do give them a lot of power. We, we, we um, you know, we idolize them. We look up to them. We, we buy their, <laughs> you know, buy their stuff and buy magazines in which they're. But I think also along with what giving them so much power, I think there is a sort of element of, of resenting that and, and wanting sometimes to, to, to re-level the playing field. I think um, what, what Schadenfreude does when we're really enjoying someone's, um, you know, say a celebrity meltdown, um, and, and that celebrity meltdown is, is, you know, 
selling lots of magazines and papers. So it's clear that people are interested and invested in this in this story. Um, I think what we're trying to do is, um, is 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 to balance the books a little bit. And, and you know, celebrities have a lot further to fall than the most than the rest of us. So I think we're sort of trying to to even things out a bit. Um, I think you're right that Schadenfreude tells us a lot more about ourselves than it does really about other people. You know, it tells us where our weak spots are, where we um, where we feel envious, where we feel resentful, um, where we feel lacking and, and wish that we could be, be more. Um, but it is all around us. You must have learned a lot about your own personal makeup and psychology as you went through the book. Like I know I said earlier at the beginning, you know, I definitely as a reader was quite challenged by some of the orca places and questions I had to ask myself as I was reading through all your research. So did you learn a lot about yourself? Well, I think this was, in a way, one of the reasons I was interested in this book was because there's so much shame around Schadenfreude, you know, shame that I feel. I mean, shame that I, you know, feel when I have to do interviews like this, you know, because I think, gosh, I've got to be the person talking about Schadenfreude. Everyone must think I'm a sort of psychopath um, and go around feeling Schadenfreude all the time, which which I don't particularly. But, you know, I do feel it sometimes, like like most people. And, um, and, and I think I was really interested in Schadenfreude because it has this tinge of shame and awkwardness. And, um, you know, we live in a culture which often wants to gloss over the more spiky or uncomfortable feelings. Um, but actually, we do need to get them out and examine them um, because they can actually be quite dangerous. Um, Schadenfreude can, uh, you know, it can be quite powerful, particularly in politics. And, and we need to sort of understand Schadenfreude so that we can understand when it's being incited in us, you know, whether that's by politicians or, or by magazines or the press and so on. But sorry, to answer your actual question, I did learn quite a lot about myself. It's true. I, I definitely emerged from this project uh, with a much clearer sense of my own moral failings <laughs> than I had to start with. Tiffany, I'm just wondering how you went about the research because, you know, you're an academic historian. You've written a lot about the history of emotions and, I suppose, charting change in society. But sitting down with any of your interviewees and getting them to talk about awkward moments, moments that they either feel shame or guilt around, or it's just a little bit, it doesn't reflect too well. Like, how did you kind of loosen people up and open the whole uh, playing field up to getting people to trust you enough to talk in, I imagine, a lot of detail about the different uh, scenarios they went through and where it came up? Yeah, so you make a good point that as a historian, I'm usually looking at of writings and diaries, letters and so on, of people who have been dead for some time. So this project is a completely new departure for me because I got to interview living people about their emotions and um, and I definitely found that um, one of the most challenging bits of, of the project, actually, um, although I was lucky to get um, some training from, from someone who, who's very experienced doing it. Um, I found that using, you know, interview techniques that allow people to... To, to, to relax people and to, you know, uh, to confess my own schadenfreude so that they felt more comfortable about talking about theirs usually worked. I mean, actually, I did find that people usually are very eager to talk about schadenfreude once you've made it safe to do so, because once you've sort of opened up the conversation and admitted your own schadenfreude, then people usually come spilling out with, <laughs> with lots of examples. What I often found, though, was after the conversation had kind of come to a close. So after that wonderful moment of kind of, um, well, we, my editor and I call it Schadenfreude Club, you know, a bit like Fight Club, you know, where people sort of have this secret conversation. Um, but after that was over, people would say, oh, God, you know, I feel a bit, I do feel a bit like I've overexposed myself. You know, I feel a bit sort of dirty now that we've had this conversation and I know you're going to go and write about it. Um, so I found that quite interesting, actually. And I did notice I felt that myself too around this book when it was being published and when I knew I was going to be promoting it and so on and talking about it. I did think, gosh, you know, I do feel a bit, I do feel a bit overexposed now. But I think it's just in the service of trying to 
trying to understand this emotion a bit better. Yeah, that's so interesting because, you know, you could be at, a, let's say, a bus stop or, you know, getting a drink in a pub and you'd go into these casual conversations with people and you could start talking about, you know, nasty experiences or just kind of general crappy stuff that happens in life. Yeah. But by talking about schadenfreude and opening up all the different moral spaces that you can go in, somebody could maybe burn up a brother or a sister or a parent and, let's say, a parent moving on to another relationship and then a failing or something that, you know, we all understand but there may be degrees of uncomfortableness about admitting to certain levels of schadenfreude like it's acceptable maybe to say you know to kind of get your kicks of your something awful happening your ex-boyfriend or something (laughs) when his new girlfriend dumps him let's say and you go oh god but then there's other levels when it's like family stuff or something I don't know do you know what I mean like we have a different kind of uh, I suppose a moral radar Yes, and actually, I mean, with the people who particularly were named interviewees in this book, um, I did run past the interviews, you know, that I was going, the way I was going to write about them, I did run past the interviews with them because I was, you know, just concerned exactly about that. Would they feel like this was too, you know, just too exposing? Although, and, and actually, and actually, in um, in both cases, they, they were absolutely fine about it. So, um, uh, so perhaps... Perhaps people are, are, you know, are, know that that people can cope with it a bit better, you know. So I talk a bit about I I have a younger brother who's who's much more successful and wealthy than than I am. <laughs> so occasionally I have little jolts of Schadenfreude towards him and his much nicer lifestyle, and um and I you know he knows that and we and I wrote about that in the book and I dedicated the book to him and you know we've had a laugh about it since. I think sometimes people quite like knowing that you feel schadenfreude at their sort of minor mishap or misfortune because it it shows that you that you do feel them a little bit to be a little bit intimidating to so to be sort of you do have a little bit of rivalry towards them and you do think that they're you know they're doing slightly better than you and um and that can be quite a, that can be quite a nice feeling sometimes i think I, I know i had this once at work someone who who i thought i thought was you know more successful than I am at work. Um, and then I told him that I hadn't got, um, it was a small thing, like a, a small promotion, and I hadn't gone my way. And uh, and I saw him, you know, have a little smile, like an involuntary twitch of a smile, and complete, and then cover it up immediately. And say, oh, you know, I'm so sorry that didn't work out, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and I remember thinking, gosh, you just smiled. You must see me as a sort of threat. And I'm really surprised to hear that. Um, and it made me sort of feel better. So... You know, sometimes it can be quite, it can be quite a, a relief, I think. As an historian of emotion, so I'm just wondering, where does that slip into kind of raving jealousy? And, you, <laughs> you know, um, like whether it's you mentioned in the workplace, you know, or you can say about a promotion or an award that you get and people can get really nasty and tricky and they may not necessarily get confrontational, but they're not too happy for a few days. And, you know, but nobody said anything. So I'm just wondering, how have you charted all of that? And then where is it within the whole arena of jealousy? Well, I mean, envy, um, uh, I think, is, is, is really the, the key word here because envy is, is, is um, you know, wanting some kind of material possession or, or position in society or whatever it is uh, that someone else has got and feeling a terrible sense of lack, actually, and a terrible sense of shame around feeling envy. I think most of us do feel shame that we feel envious at all. Um, I mean, I think envy is, is kind of, it's just one of the emotions and it's quite a normal thing to feel, I think, when, when there's um, something that you want and you don't have and you don't know how to get it. Um, so it's a normal thing to feel. Um, and you're right that schadenfreude is one of the ways we deal with envy because um, envy can be incredibly painful and schadenfreude gives us a little moment of glee, a happy little burst when we think that someone who we do envy uh, has sort of lost a little bit of their sheen, essentially, uh, and it is um, it, it is a moment which allows us to tolerate the unfairnesses of life, the, the obvious unfairnesses of life, and make them a little bit more palatable and 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 and, and sort of even things out a bit. Um, and uh, and sometimes it can even save uh, our friendships. For example, when you know most of us will have had an experience of having a a friend that we've had a long friendship and, you know, your lives have gone in separate directions and perhaps your friend has become very successful in one field or another and you might not have done quite the same amount of stuff that they have. And, 
and and you know and and sometimes it they, those yeah, you can feel genuine you know you genuinely love this person you you know you they're your friend but sometimes you know little moments of envy creep in that that seems fairly normal and then you know a little moment of schadenfreude just can help you know rebalance things and and make things feel more equitable and it can i think sometimes rescue friendships actually and and allow them to to sort of get back on a on an even keel so i mean i think schadenfreude the way you're describing it can make it seem like it's part of a kind of very tricky subterranean um malicious kind of response and i think that sometimes it can be like that but i suppose i'm i'm trying to um explore it as a as a much wider emotion one one that is actually kind of often part of our you know part of our relationships even our very good relationships and it's certainly part of the, the, our enmities but sometimes part of our really good relationships and, and actually can be quite a, can play quite a useful role I loved the title of one of your chapters. It was uh, called uh, Accidents Falling Over Diarrhea and Other Disasters. I have to say I laughed so much on that one. Um, you write somewhere that fail videos are the cultural pinnacle of our age of schadenfreude. And when you look at, broadly at whether you go on YouTube or whatever, it's stuffed with it, isn't it? Oh, it certainly is. And I get sent them all the time now, as you can imagine. Um, uh, yes, there, there are tons of them. And I suppose I wanted to make the point that... Um, that you know people are viewing you know enjoy these you know whether it's a cat falling off a building or you know someone um texting and walking into a lamppost you know or someone not being able to park very well which is myself by the way um i i just think these these videos you know they do entertain us you know we do share them and um and you know i'm sure we've all had the experience of being at work and saying you know come over here have a look at this and you know everyone's crowding around a phone or a computer to have a look at uh, this video, you know, it's part of, it's a little bit of letting off steam, it's a little bit of um, camaraderie, you know, it's important that we all laugh together, you know, and, and um, because it is a way in which we bond. Tell me, how do you explain uh, the online world and some of the stuff that's put out on Twitter or wherever? I know you write that we are exposed to far more misdeeds online than in any face-to-face interaction. So how do you understand that? Because, like you, you argued earlier, you know, in terms of a kind of adaptive and evolving um, evolution of emotions that, you know, it's always been with us to a degree. But it so has intensified in the um, online environment. Yeah, so, so I think you're, you're right that Schadenfreude has always been with us, um, I think the oldest example I found in my research was a um, ancient Egyptian tombstone with a carving of a, of a rather smug-looking builder dropping a mallet on his foot. So there's this sort of sense that we've, we've enjoyed um, accidents for a long time. Um, actually, there's even um, a scientific study of laughter that suggests that the way we laugh at um, slapstick and pratfalls and people you know, accidentally getting whacked over the head with a mallet and so on, that kind of laughter is is um, a, a laughter that's very unique to humans. It doesn't exist in, in, in amongst any other animals. And that kind of belly laughter that is that when you laugh so hard that that you're actually in pain because you're not breathing anymore. Um, and they linked this kind of laughter um, to um, how people were experiencing pain. And they noticed that people who laugh like this experienced a lot less pain. Uh, than people who um, weren't laughing at or weren't shown these kind of slapstick scenarios to laugh at. Um, so they suggested that, you know, when we're enjoying um, schadenfreude, when we're enjoying kind of slapstick-based schadenfreude, what we're, you know, we're, we're bonding as groups, but we're also, um, you know, it's evolved to help us um, cope in, in very harsh conditions. Um, so yes, schadenfreude, I think, has been with us. Uh, this kind of laughter has been with us for a very um, a very long time, but of course now we're finding ourselves in a uh, uh, in, in a very different, uh, or it seems to be a very different environment um, uh, with the world online, and um, it is interesting uh, how Schadenfreude is changing uh, with our online interactions. Um, uh, if you walk down the street, you, you're probably not going to bump into loads of examples of injustice, of terrible injustice, and people getting their comeuppance. But you spend five minutes you know, 20 minutes certainly online and you're definitely going to come across quite a lot of, of terrible stories of misdeeds and wrongdoings and possibly examples of people, you know, getting their comeuppance and being punished. And you might, um, ex- so you might experience a sense of outrage uh, by being online that you're just not going to experience in your day-to-day, you know, walking around the streets type of life. Um, so it is true that I think the online world does ex- 
sort of make possible the opportunity for schadenfreude much more frequently um, than, than the offline world does. But also, uh, psychologists talk about something called costly justice. Um, so when we, um, if we were to imagine, if you were to imagine confronting someone uh, who has parked in, you know, across your driveway, say, um, you might not actually do it because you might be worried that you might get told off or punched in the nose or something. Um, so you might be sort of willing to, to, to let things slide. But, but online, you know, there really isn't any risk to, um, to telling someone else off or indeed to enjoying the spectacle of someone else told off. You know, people in real life, you, you probably wouldn't laugh when someone is pulled over by the police for speeding. You, you certainly wouldn't laugh in their face. But you might do it uh, if you heard about that story online because there really isn't any risk um, to you personally. So social media platforms, you know, they, they, they say that they are neutral. But I think it's really important that we understand that they do, in fact, play quite a large role in, in, in sort of exacerbating um, the, the potential for schadenfreude. Um, in our online interactions. To what extent is schadenfreude understood differently within different uh, religious traditions? Like I presume we're all working through different cultural contexts and social landscapes, but I'm just wondering how we, you know, how different religious uh, traditions understand it. I know that you write public humiliation has long been part of religious discipline. And I think you, you quote some examples from the Old Testament. So are we kind of, are some, you know, religious traditions more tolerant, more understanding, are more spacious with it all than others? Um, well, certainly the, the concept that we might enjoy the misfortunes of other people, I mean, we don't have a word for it in English, but most, most languages do have a word for it. I mean, it's there in French and Danish and Russian and Serbo-Croat and um, the Melanesians who live in a very remote atoll in the Pacific Ocean, they have a concept for it, Banbanum. Um, the Japanese have a wonderful saying, the misfortunes of others taste like honey. Um, so this isn't a, an unfamiliar concept, uh, you know, to most cultures around the world, I think. Um, certainly, when we're looking at Christianity, I think there is a really interesting conflict around schadenfreude. You know, on the one hand, as you say, the, in the Old Testament, I think it says, don't, don't gloat when your enemy falls, you know, don't rejoice. Um, and that, you know, that's an injunction against schadenfreude, of course. But then you also see, uh, you know, a, a very strong tradition of Christian um, painters and writers and theologians who often relish the the suffering, say, of the sinners in in hell. Uh, I'm thinking about Bosch's amazing painting, The Last Judgment. Um, I'm even thinking about a, a quote, which is actually the epigraph for, for the book uh, on Schadenfreude. Um, uh, it's a quote by St. Thomas Aquinas uh, from the Summa Theologia, which was written in the 13th century. Uh, he says, The blessed in the kingdom of heaven will see the punishments of the damned so that their bliss will be that much greater. So there is this sort of sense that Schadenfreude does have um, a role to play in, in how we think about good and evil, in the Christian tradition at least. You also argue that um, from Icarus to Elon Musk, hubris is the flaw we are most excited to see punished. I'm just wondering, why do we get so worked up about that? Is it that, you know, we like to see that, you know, we don't like to think that people think that they're better than us, that they're superior to us in any way, that we all are universally uh, revolted by that? Yeah, I think I think I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think there is um, a, a real distaste for people who appear to think they're better than other people, or superior, or more know, knowing in some way. Um, I think that again, I think that goes kind of goes very deep into what it means to be part of a human society, because you know, as humans, our survival absolutely depends on being in groups, and those groups you know, have to be equitable, you know, they have to, we have to share things and we have to feel like we're all getting something um, fairly. And uh, in order for those societies to feel, uh, to, to, to feel stable. And, uh, and, and so when you, when you have someone coming along who thinks they're better than the rest and deserves more perhaps than, than other people, um, perhaps a show off or, you know, um, who, who just doesn't quite play by the rules, I think it is a difficult thing for us to to, to cope with because um, because we need people to, to kind of all <laughs> toe the line. Now, it is a really interesting conflict, I think. Um, uh, certainly, you, you get societies, um, I'm thinking particularly of Scandinavian societies, where, where 
um, equality is a really important part of the of the of the of the kind of cultural makeup. And, and in in those societies, something called um, something the Danish call the law of yante, which is you know don't think you're better than anyone else, you know don't think you deserve more than anyone else, and so on. Um, uh, is it, a very very powerful force actually. Um, and I certainly know that that I recognise that you know real dislike for people showing off for hubris, for smugness, and so on. Um, I think there are different ways to think about this particular distaste, but um, one, I think, really important thing to remember um, is that when we feel schadenfreude, when, I don't know, um, uh, Icarus falls to, <laughs> falls to earth, um, then uh, partly I think what we're doing is, is saying, you know, it's for his own good or it's, for, it's a good warning for other people who might try and sort of overreach um it, it it's it's for your own good that you don't stray too far uh from the uh from our society because uh then you, you know we can't protect you anymore so i think we sort of have those thoughts going through our heads when we are enjoying um the misfortunes of those who who seem to have overreached it's a way of justifying i think the sense that they not just that they deserved it but that also you know we're kind of protecting them uh, uh from themselves as it were Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with British historian of emotions and writer Tiffany Watt-Smith about her latest book, Schadenfreude, The Joy of Another's Misfortune, where Tiffany argues that today we find ourselves trapped between two different impulses – one to celebrate individuality and flair, and the other to condemn it. I asked Tiffany, what does schadenfreude tell us about human vulnerability and our sense of self? Well, definitely uh, schadenfreude reveals where we feel vulnerable. I think that's absolutely true. And, um, you know, whether that's because we, we envy someone or we feel a bit inferior, 
I mean, sometimes the vulnerability of schadenfreude is, is, is a little different. I, I, I know that um, historically a lot of philosophers have talked about the pleasure we, we feel in seeing other people have accidents of some kind. So, you know, a skier face planting into a snowdrift. They've said that that leaves us with a sense of superiority, you know, that that, that, that makes us feel quite powerful to see other people having those kinds of accidents. I'm not sure that that's true, actually. I, th I think that one of the things that happens when we, when we're, we laugh at, at people having those kinds of accidents is a, as a sort of there, but for the grace of God go I sort of feeling, you know, it's a, it's a laughter, but it has a kind of premonition of your own possible uh, disaster or your own possible, um, you know, how easy it is, I think, for us all to, you know, be one slip on the curbstone away from, you know, landing on our faces. Uh, so um, there is a sort of vulnerability, I think, to that as well. I don't think it's just simple um, superiority, you know, you've tripped, I haven't, na, 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 na. I think it's more like, you know, you you trip and, and this is a shock and a surprise to, to you and to me and we're laughing at your vulnerability, but we're also laughing at, the, at all of our vulnerability to these kinds of accidents. Presumably you started out the book, Tiffany, with, you know, a whole range of different questions. But I imagine as you went through the research and then the different interviews and you dig deeper and deeper, you know, the research raised other questions that you possibly hadn't asked yourself, did it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think I, I started with a very simple idea that schadenfreude was really about envy. It hadn't occurred to me that it was also about justice uh, and also about equality Um uh, and uh, one of the things I, I thought was really interesting was was the um, uh, was the ways in which we sometimes invite people to feel Schadenfreude at our expense. You know, perhaps if you start in a new um, a, a new job and you're going into um, you know a new office with lots of new people, you might find yourself telling a self-deprecating story. You know, about some disaster that befell you on the way to work. You know, you want people to to feel a little bit of Schadenfreude at your expense. Um, because um, it means that they are not going to be threatened by you. It means that you're going to be accepted into the group. It's a way of bonding and making people laugh. Um, so I was quite surprised to think about how prevalent, actually, and important sometimes this emotion is in our lives. It's amazing to think how complex and sophisticated our emotions are. Like on the surface, mm. they seem, you know, pretty black and white. Mm. But when you look richly through them, uh, it presents so many different questions. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the key thing that I, I, I was hoping to get across with this book was that, you know, we might instinctively think that schadenfreude is, you know, it's an unpleasant or malicious type of emotion. But actually, you know, this when you look a bit more deeply, you find it a very rich and, and uh, interesting part of how we relate to one another. Um, and yes, as you say, the the line between good and bad or morally right and morally wrong is not very uh, simple with any emotion, but particularly not with schadenfreude. Um, schadenfreude is what psychologists call a cognitive emotion. So rather than a simple kind of trigger response that happens, say a car swerves towards you, uh, that's the trigger and your response is fear, you know, raised heartbeat and so on. Um, schadenfreude is not really like that. You know, schadenfreude involves appraising and judging and understanding uh, situations and Something that can be funny in one situation is very unfunny in another. Um, so you might really enjoy some accident that befell some historical character many hundreds of years ago. But, you know, goodness, if it happened to your next door neighbour, it would be extremely upsetting. You pitch up an unbelievable question, Tiffany, um, halfway through the book. You ask, could schadenfreude ever lead to more meaningful workplace change? Well, what do you think from what you've learned through the writing of the book? Do you think that's possible? <laughs> Well, I think that Schadenfreude, you know, plays a really big role in the workplace, um, in both positive and negative ways. Um, one of the positive things I think that it does is that it allows people um, to um, just sort of cope a little bit better with the hierarchies. Um, so, with, essentially, with having a boss. Um, so, you know, uh, employees often use Schadenfreude as, as a way of bonding, enjoying the boss's, you know, humiliating or embarrassing gaffes or whatever it is that they've done. Uh, you know, I think this is quite this is quite normal, um, but also it allows us to to sort of balance the books a little bit. I, actually, one of the people I interviewed was a very prominent American academic, and he um, recalls this uh, this new head of department coming into his department, and um, he really didn't like this person, and they didn't like him, and there was a lot of animosity between them. And then he saw this 
you know, this new head of department giving a lecture, you know, who's also a very prominent academic, giving a lecture, and his flies were undone. And it was such a stupid thing. But this academic still, you know, five, six years later, was still laughing about this moment because it, it sort of, it was so silly, but it just allowed him to, to cope a bit better with the, you know, with this very difficult relationship with his boss. It's a bit like when you're, you know, you've got a job interview and you're encouraged to imagine the um, interview panel, you know, without their clothes on or something. It just, it just, it was a moment that things could be sort of made a bit more equal um, so now it was a kind is, of a leveller then. So it kind of balances things and gets things more, more level. Absolutely, it's a leveller. Now it doesn't. I mean, obviously, it doesn't really have any real, or it doesn't immediately have any real implications. You know, in in evening out power or money or whatever within a workplace. But but it might give you a little bit of confidence. It might just give you a little bit more of a of an edge. It might make you feel a little bit less you know, cowed or intimidated by those who are superior to you in in the work um, hierarchy. And that's got to be valuable, I think. Can I throw you a philosophical question, if you don't mind? Tiffany, it just struck me as you were talking there. Do you think it's possible to be too emotionally aware? That by being so emotionally switched on to other people's emotions and, you know, and all the layers and complexities within it, that it, we can like overthink and overanalyze everything and ourselves in the mix. And then by definition, it just becomes a controlled environment. Well, this question about a controlled environment, I think is really astute. Um, I think that's really interesting. I mean, I don't think we could be too too emotionally aware um, because I think that, um, you know, I think that un- being able to understand your own emotions and those of other people is hugely important for then being able to manage your emotions and those of other people's uh, and by which I mean um, you know not let things get out of control not allow yourself to react in a bad or spontaneous or sort of way in which you might regret you know by control I think I probably just mean um, uh, taking away some of the kind of sometimes scary power of our emotions like an emotion like envy or anger you know can if we don't really understand what's happening to us in those moments can feel quite alarming I think um but I think you're right that we are living in a a world where there is a greater amount of um interest in um monitoring emotions and um, uh, disciplining them, actually, and telling people off for the wrong kind of emotions at the wrong time. And um, this is something that we need to understand, I think, a bit better and, and, and notice more. Now, I don't think that, I think the more emotionally aware we are as individuals means that we're less likely, in fact, to sort of get too, you know, too uh, sort of swayed or under the thumb of these kind of very um, sometimes morally conservative uh, attitudes towards what emotions are you're entitled to feel and which ones you know you ought not to, um, I think that really understanding your own emotions sort of allows you to to kind of accept your own feelings even if they're out of step with the dominant you know fashion or um, demand for emotions. So, for example, we all know that you know, happiness is an emotion which is highly prized these days. Now, most of us don't feel happy all the time. And some of us might feel very ashamed of feeling sad. And um, and so, but the more in tune with your own emotions you are, the, the less likely you are to feel ashamed of feeling sad. You can just feel sad and then know how to put on a happy face when you have to and so on. So I don't think that understanding emotions better is the thing that's contributing to this um, new interest in um, uh, monitoring and managing emotions. I think it is actually something that can help us um, fight against it. I imagine, though, that Schadenfreude, though, whether you're um, an absolute extrovert or an introvert, you know, some could express it in a very private way at home, say, you know, smiling with glee as somebody else trips over, or then you could be quite, you know, up on Twitter and writing something not very pleasant. But, um, 
I would imagine lots of people would, by listening to an interview like this and reading your book, could feel that there are aspects of their schadenfreude themselves that they could possibly work on. So either where you do it quite publicly or quite privately, how would you, um, I suppose, um, one, console, <laughs> but two, um, how, what would you advise somebody in terms of working to the kind of greater positivity within it and maybe working on the more joyful aspects of it? <laughs> um, I think uh, I think the consolations of Schadenfreude, um, you know, I think it is something that that you know can tip over into into a more unpleasant emotion. And so, one of the things that I think is really important is to is to understand it. Um, you know, as I said earlier, there's lots of you know we do live in a culture which which wants to gloss over spiky or awkward or difficult feelings. Um, but I think we do need to learn how to look them in the eye if we want to understand them better. Um, so I think I think trying to understand what's triggered it, trying to understand why it's given you so much pleasure, what kind of pleasure you're feeling, you know, whether you're feeling vindicated or self-satisfied or whether you're just feeling triumphant or whether it's about glee and amusement. You know, I think I think those are questions worth asking yourself when your schadenfreude has made you feel uncomfortable. Um, for the most part, I think we're okay with our Schadenfreude. Sometimes it's going to be it's going to leave you with a sort of slightly unpleasant taste in your mouth, and you think, "Oh, why did I? Why was I smiling then? I, I, you know, I didn't mean to smile. Why did I suddenly smile?" And 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 if you have that sort of experience, and I think we all do, um, then I think those are the moments when it's good to you know give yourself permission to examine it a little bit more and try and understand you know what was behind it. Um, I think when we understand our emotions more, they, 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 they have a little bit less power over us. But I think also, you know, today when we do live in, a, in an age where there's um, many opportunities to feel schadenfreude, um, when, when there are big, you know, crowds of people enjoying schadenfreude online and when it's very easy to get swept up in that, I think it is important for us to understand how this emotion works so that we... Um, make sure that we are using it responsibly, uh, as it were. You know, you don't want schadenfreude on your mind when you're going into the voting booth. You don't want schadenfreude on your mind when you're um, interacting with someone, a stranger online. You know, you don't um, want schadenfreude in your mind when you are, you know, working, uh, I don't know, with students in your school. So, you know, it's important to, to understand um you know, what triggers this emotion so that you can sort of keep it at bay when you need to. historian of emotions, Tiffany Watt-Smith. Schadenfreude, The Joy of Another's Misfortune, is published by Profile Books and retails for just under 13 euros in hardback. Not bad value at all. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. OK, all that's left for me to do now is to say thank you for listening and a big shout-out to the lovely Chris Bent on Sound. We've been Talking Books. 
I'd like to close tonight's broadcast with the thought-provoking words of Tiffany Watt-Smith from Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude might seem malicious, but when we look more closely, a far more complex emotional landscape emerges. A superior smirk might be a sign of vulnerability. What might seem a sort of hate may really be a conflicted kind of love and a desire to belong. What perks us up when we hear news of someone else's misfortune is the discovery that we are not alone in our disappointments, but are a part of a community of the failed. Schadenfreude might be a flaw granted, but we need it. It is probably not too much to call it a salvation. Insightful words indeed. Good night.